In this episode, Kari Dixon speaks about uh, children's fiction from Norway. Authors Erika Fatland, Ruin Christiansen, and about the novel she translated so beautifully, The Loneliness in Lydia Ehrman's Life. Kari Dixon is an award-winning translator from Norwegian. Her work includes crime fiction, literary fiction, children's books, theater, and non-fiction. She is also an occasional tutor in Norwegian language, literature and translation at the University of Edinburgh and has worked with British Centre for Literary Translation, the National Centre for Writing and the Translators Association. So welcome Kari to our podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Tell us about your association with Norway and uh, Norwegian language. My mother is Norwegian, was Norwegian, so I grew up speaking Norwegian because I was, and I say this quite, I was very lucky because my grandparents couldn't speak English. We have quite big generation gaps in our family, and it meant that whenever we went to Norway in the summer, we had to speak Norwegian if we were going to communicate them. So I spoke Norwegian from as, as soon as I could speak. And as a result of that, I have parts of my experience going out fishing, collecting mushrooms, berries, all that kind of vocabulary is much stronger in Norwegian than it is in English, because that's what we did in the summer. But because I only really spoke it with my grandparents or people who came to visit us in Scotland, it was quite old fashioned language. And I moved to Norway when I was 18 to work as an au pair. And I very quickly updated my language because people thought I sounded really quaint and old fashioned. And so I learned to swear and I learned slang and I learned. So I spoke in Norwegian all my life. And then I went on to university and studied, did Scandinavian studies at the University College London. So I had four four years of formal education. And it was quite interesting because I spoke Norwegian fluently at that stage, but I'd never written it and I'd never formally learned the grammar. So it was quite an interesting and at times painful process to relearn a language I could already speak. But that's also where I started reading a lot of the Norwegian literature and the canon. So when you say Norwegian, you have different versions of Norwegian, I believe, because I was reading articles about Jan Fossa, (laughs) which is a version that you are referring to. New Norwegian, which is what Fossa writes in, is a language that was constructed and developed in the 1800s. And it is based on the dialects that are spoken in Western and Central Norway. So it's actually only spoken on TV and on stage. What people speak is their dialect. And then Nunosh, in a way, is a written standard for those, for that people. And it's spoken mainly on the, or it's used mainly on the Western Central, West Coast and Central Norway. So I grew up. The, the Norwegian I speak is the Norwegian that's that they've always spoken on the East Coast, but the written standard is based on Danish and has developed from Danish. This interesting. I can, 
So Danish works on a two gender system, masculine and masculine, feminine, one gender and neuter is another. Most dialects in Norway have a three gender system, for example. So there have been all these language reforms through Norway from Riksmål, which is the old fashioned, what the Danes spoke is basically Danish with the Norwegian accent. And that's what is the written where people would be speak, whereas people would be speaking their dialect, they would be writing Riksmål. Riksmål then developed in something called Bukmål. And the, and then there is even something called radical bookmore, which is where they use a three gender system and A endings. So language in Norway is pretty complex and often quite political because it's what you choose to speak. But they have no, the advantage of it is that dialect is perfectly accepted. So they have nothing like received pronunciation in Britain. So you, in a way, it's not posher to speak one way or the other. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting landscape. I know about it superficially um, through through my own studies and, and things like that, but I'm, I'm not an expert on Norwegian language politics at all. I can talk about reforms and I can tell you the, the sort of the broad outline, yeah. But your translations, mostly the Norwegian literature, uh, which form it is? It is a new Norwegian? Both. I work from both, yeah. So what kind of books that you used to read uh, when you were in school, in the younger days? Obviously, we got a lot of books from Norway. So a lot of particularly children's books, picture books were what I read in Norwegian. And then as I got older, I actually, I read a lot of books about other countries. Only thinking about this, whether they were Tolkien, imaginary countries, or I was obsessed as sort of a 12-year-old. I became really, I read a lot about the Russian courts. I've always been interested in Southeast Asia, so I read stuff. And I have relatives in Australia, so we got books from Australia. So I, I guess I've always read quite a broad, yeah, quite a broad church. And it's never been specifically British. For example, my mother, in her wisdom, never let us read Enid Blyton. So that is something that is not part of my childhood. <laughs> so there you go. But we read a lot. We were a household that read. I grew up, we never had a TV, so we read. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. One interesting thing is that uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, they produce uh, wonderful children fiction. Why is that? Why that specific focus on children fiction? There are several things. They have a very strong tradition of folk tales. So again, at the time that new Norwegian language was being constructed in the 1800s, there's there a period where there was um, a sort of blossoming of national romanticism. And there were two guys called Aspiansen and Mo, who went around, again, central western Eastern Norway, because getting to the north of Norway, it takes a long, 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 long time. But they went round and they collected the oral traditions and the stories that were told on the farms, and they made them into a two-volume collection. And most children in Norway will have that. They'll be given it at some point. So that's one thing, is that there is this oral, this folktale tradition. I think that Laterally, 
this idea of democracy. Children are seen and treated as adults. Not as adults, but they're given equal priority in many ways. So that children's literature has been very strong from the 1800s. And they're not pandered to, they're not patronised in the same way. One of the other things strikes me about a lot of Scandinavian children's literature is the quality of the illustrations, particularly in picture books. But I think also, if you think of something like Ostri Lindgren with Pippi Longstocking, there is, an, an again, an equality about the way people are treated, the way girls are treated in her books in particular. So that I think that there, there is this really strong tradition of children's stories. And in the 50s in Norway, there were three voices in particular in children's literature that were heard, which was Ulf Preussen, who also wrote songs. And he wrote Mrs. Pepperpot. And then there was a woman called Inger Hagerup, and she wrote poetry and stories, and someone called Torbjörn Enger, who wrote books. But they were also on the radio at the time. There was this the first national radio. So they were voices that everyone heard. When you were growing up, everyone heard these voices. Everyone had these books. And, and for my generation, we were then given them by our parents, by our grandparents, because that is what... So there's canon, almost, of children's literature as well. And, for example, Maria Pod, who writes Waffle Hearts, who you might have heard about. Waffle Hearts is a book that has sold extremely well to lots of countries and is seen to be a, a modern classic in Norway and also in Britain after it was translated. And it, again, it's this kind of pippy longstropping. Children are allowed to go out, they're allowed to play, they're allowed to be feisty. Yeah, so I think that, that, but also that because they're rural, they live a slightly different life, they have to use their imagination in different ways. Because there is because I'm saying this is my opinion, so it's not because people have grown up with the tradition of children's books. They are able to write children's books and they want to write children's books and they see children's books as being worthy of writing, if that makes sense. And I hope I'm not patronizing or criticizing other countries. But, but, and then there is a system whereby the Norwegian Cultural Council buys 1,500 copies of children's books and young adult books that are published, or they select certain things, which means that people are able to take risks in a very different way. And a lot of authors write in several genres. So I, two, two extremes, I can say, where they've written a Jörn Lierhorst, who is a prolific crime fiction writer, former policeman. He has written children's books, so a children's detective series, but he's also written a book about forensics for children. Mufossa also writes children's books. So I just, I literally just read, as he won the, the Nobel Prize, a book that is about to be translated into English by Damien Searles, or it will be in the future, called The, the Dog Manuscript, which is delightful. And it's three stories about old dogs, which can be read by children and can also be read by adults with extra depth. But yeah, 
So people really, and Shashti Anastasia Scunsville, who is best known for her novels, has also written children's books. So yeah, it, it's, I think it's given, it's given a lot of, and you asked about if there are any indie, um, and I say this again with a bit of caution. To my knowledge, as far as I'm aware, there are no publishers in Norway that are dedicated to children's literature. They're all publishers publish children's literature. And there are some, so there's one, for example, when I was growing up, there was a publisher called Dom, which published an enormous amount of children's literature. So mo- most of the books that we were given as children would have been published by Dom, but they published lots of other stuff as well. And they merged with Copran, which was one of the big ed- publishing houses in 2007 to become the biggest publishing house in Norway. So the major publishing houses all have children's children's sections and they all have ded- agents who are dedicated to selling children's titles. But to my knowledge, and if anyone hears this and can correct me, please do, to my knowledge, there's no, no one who's dedicated to children's literature. And there are, and young adult fiction is on the rise at the moment, and it's on the rise as an export from Norway. So it's more popular. And they, you asked about why again. And I think it's also because they cover subjects that are difficult, that other cultures may not. So there are books about death. There are books about sex for children and for young adults. There are books about, and just think of Gustain Gorda, Sophie's World, was written for young readers. Not, okay, it's not a picture book, but it was actually initially aimed at teenagers to teach them, or young people to teach them about philosophy. Yeah, that's wonderful because uh, that creates a very strong reading culture in the society as a whole, the whole country, right? So it's wonderful. And, and, and an interesting thing is that Norwegians were very slow to take on they have a lot of book clubs. So, so I think the, the physical book it has is still very, yeah. What sparked your interest in translations? I thought about it vaguely when I was little and I was reading these books that my friends couldn't read. But I don't think I don't think I knew you could make a career out of it, if that makes sense. And I initially Worked in theatre. I was a front house manager. So I'd studied Scandinavian studies at university. And then I worked, went off to work in theatres in London. I don't know. I think my name was put forward by one of my university lecturers. But I was asked to do a literal translation of an Ibsen play. So The Lady from the Sea was the first play that I translated in a literal version, which was then used by the Women's Playhouse Trust and scripted by a playwright. So I worked with, I did my initial literary, literal translation, and then I met with the director and the playwright, and we talked through the translation. The playwright went off and wrote a new script, and then it was directed. And then I was, not much later, 
within a year, I think. I was asked to do the same for Hedda Gabler for the Manchester Exchange. And that made me realise that it was something that I could do and that I enjoyed. And it brought together, in a way, two passions, which was, at that point, theatre and literature. So I then went and did a master's in translation at the University of Surrey. And at that stage, I, again, was not aware, if there were any universities that did literary translation specifically, I was not aware of them. But Surrey University had a a Scandinavian option in their translation studies. So I went and did that. And the head of the department knew that I was interested in literary translation. And she put me in touch with an organization called NULA. I don't know if you've heard of them. N-O-R-L-A. A phenomenal organization. And they're the envy of translators the world over. So it's a government-funded organization that promotes Norwegian literature abroad. And they support and assist and encourage translators and they provide subsidies for translation. So at the stage when I got in touch with them, I was, I realised now, I was hugely fortunate because there was, the people who had been translating in in into English in Britain up to that point were getting older. And it was also at the time when the Scandi Noir crime wave, if you like, took off. And so I arrived at a time when suddenly there was a, a surge in work and some of the older translators were retiring. And so it, it still took me five years, five years to transition from doing commercial translation to literary. And at that point, it still wasn't a full-time, I wasn't making a full-time living. So yeah, that's how I got interested in how I started in translation. So when did you start translating children's literature? 2014. It was commissioned or you chose to translate? Again, I've been extremely fortunate in that work has always come to me. So I don't, I haven't pitched, slightly embarrassing to say, I haven't actually pitched for anything. Um, But what happens, because... Scandinavia, because Norway has this NULA and they have a very well-oiled literary machine and they have improved it and got better and better and they realise that this is something that is worth investing in. The agents, the Norwegian literary agents who previously were attached to the big publishing houses, that's not, the publishing scene in Norway has changed tremendously in the past 20 years. But they commission sample translations, which they then send out to publishers all over the world. And for that, they often, they use an English translation, unless uh, French, German, English. For countries where they have a translator who works into that language, they will do a sample into that language. But, but English is used 
to sell beyond because most people speak English. With children's picture books, because picture books are so short, they often commission the entire book. So I was asked to do a book called My Father's Arms Are a Boat. It was actually 2012 that I translated it, but it was published in 2014. And in Norwegian, it was called In New Norwegian, written by Stein-Erik Lunde and illustrated by someone called Oven Torsetter. That was then bought by Enchanted Lion Books in New York. And I have to confess that most of the work I've done for children's books has been, apart from two, has been for and has been books illustrated by Oven Torsetter. <laughs> Claudia Bedrick and I share a passion for his books and his work. But that has been... I've now done one, two, three, four, five, six. And there's a seventh one, which hasn't been published yet, of his books for Enchanted Lion. I also did Chashdis Gumsvold, who I talked about earlier, Bedtime for Bo. And then one of the books called Brown won a Batchelder, won the Batchelder book prize. And then Amazon got in touch and asked me to translate a book called Agnes's book. Agnes is placed by Marit Larsen and it illustrated by Jenny Lovely. But another one that I love, which I did in two thousand was published in 2017 by Margaret K. McKeldry. I'm writing, making sure I get these names. So it's all been for American publishers as well, which is called The Ballad of the Broken Nose by a writer called Arne Svingen, who writes for young adults. And it's this wonderful story of a boy called Bart who all he wants to do is be an opera singer. But his mother thinks he needs to toughen up, so she sends him to boxing classes. And as the story progresses, you realise that he comes from... His mother is overweight, depressed, lives in social housing, comes from quite a deprived, not an easy background. This, the house where they live, there are drug addicts. There are, but it's this beautiful book about a young boy who is warm and has this out there dream. <laughs> the other one uh, that I came across, uh, which was very interesting to me, is by Erika Fatland. Hi. I, I love that book. So for the last few years, I have been... Again, I keep saying it. I've been so fortunate. I've translated three books by Erica, translated authors who I love, and I've worked with four of them for the last four years. And high is Erica's travels in the Himalayas. So she's a remarkable woman who goes off for months on end and travels on her own. And the first two novels are basically about Russia. And High is about, yeah, the Himalayas. And she travels all over the Himalayas to the most remote places on her own and is primarily looking at women in in the Himalayas. When I read it for the first time, I said to her, gosh, this is very different from your other books. There's no, there's less history. And she went, I wouldn't dare embark on the history of all that feel like that that 
that part of the world and all those little countries and all those and Indian history and, and it's very much about her meetings with people and me, it makes me want to go there so badly to some of these little tribes up in the back fascinated and I think that is her real strength is her meetings with people and she says that in order to do that she has to travel alone and she goes off on her own on these long journeys to places that to places where they might not have seen I mean certainly in Russia and things like that, where they might not have seen a small red-haired woman before but she has an ability to talk to people and to get stories out of them. And, and one of the interesting things she said about Hai is that she was, because she was a foreigner, she was also allowed into spaces that women were not allowed into normally. So that, and because her guides were often, or her interpreters were often men, she was able to see both parts of, of, of society where women would not necessarily have access to the men's world and men wouldn't be allowed into the women's world. So she crisscrossed. Does she speak English? Yes. She's a polyglot. She speaks Russian, English. Um, she's just been traveling the Portuguese empire, so she may well have learned Portuguese by now. I think she tried to learn Chinese, but found it very challenging. And, and her background is social anthropology and Russian studies. Now, given the choice, if you have to pick up a certain kind of book, what would you like to translate all through? be honest, books like the ones I've been translating for the past four or five years, I like... So one of the writers I translate is a woman called Gunnil Oyehaug, who writes in New Norwegian. And she has... An amazing mind. I would love to rent space in her mind for a while. So she's complete. She's a very meta writer. She has an in-depth knowledge of literary theory, literary history. And her latest book, Evil Flowers, which was published in America, is obviously based on Rambo. Is it Rambo? Yeah. And she will write mini universes. And she's written, I've translated two novels and two short story collections. So she's written most short stories. So they really are mini universes. And they might have an art, so there might be a string running through them. But her mind is extraordinary. So there are, there, and that varies from love stories to, uh, and love stories between humans and androids up on you know, in the space shuttle. And there was one that I remember I started out on and it was about a man sitting down at the fish market in Bergen. You never quite know whether he's actually just pretending to sell things because he likes being part of the, the community or if he, but it's very realistic. And then he sees another man running along the end of the pier and he wonders why he's carrying a heavy stone. And then in the footnotes, you read about this man who's carrying the heavy stone and it's completely fantastical. He has to wade through syrup to go to school. And I love that bonkers, the way you have to just go with her because she digresses. But I've learned to trust that she will always come back. She will always loop it round. And is, is structurally and stylistically an, a really good writer.
Rune Christensen, who I know we're going to talk about, is also a great stylist. And I also translate his partner, Mona Hovering, who is also a poet and a writer and, and a stylist. And she can write equally fantastical novels. Um, just, And I love doing that kind of thing, where I'm challenged linguistically, I'm challenged stylistically, I'm thrilled by madness at points and, and also touched by beauty. What more can I say? And when I do things like this, it's really good because it reminds me how of my great good fortune. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about the harshest criticism and glowing praise you received in your translation work. The harshest criticism was for a crime novel that I translated and it was an online review. But they said, who is this woman? She's like a fourth grade translator. She's got it completely wrong. She clearly doesn't speak the language. Oh, that must have been around 2010. I'm trying to think when I was, I've been translating for about 10 years then. Another one was where an author refused to work with me because he thought I wasn't good enough. But then, go figure, the next book I did won a prize. But my personal, I have a little stash that I keep in the archive from my emails, was from James Wood, the American literary critic and literary scholar, who on done a short story by Gunnil Ayahag, the woman I was talking about for him, and Claire Mahood for Masood for a publication that they were editing. And they wrote back and they said, we don't want to change anything. And for me, from James Wood as a literary big god, if you like, in America, that was, that's my personal bit where I thought, wow, I was starstruck. So were there any characters that had a lasting impact on you after translating it for a while? Lydia. Oh. Lydia Erneman. I want to be Lydia Erneman. I'm glad that I picked that book. <laughs> I want to live her life. I thought that was very neat when when those questions came under. <laughs> I have a lot to talk about the book. <laughs> have you read it? Yes, of course. Ah, did you like it? Of course, yes. Of course, yes. So, what does translation mean to you personally? It is a broad range of things. If, for me, it's something I can do because I speak two languages and it allows me to live in the two worlds and cultures that I've grown up in. Some days I feel more Norwegian than I do British and some days I feel more British. than. And it doesn't. It, that's irrelevant of where I'm living. And I often say that I'm happiest halfway between the two countries. doesn't matter which direction I'm going in. So that, that ability to live constantly in two cultures, two languages, is a privilege. And that is my skill, if you like. I often talk about translation as a way of life. So this idea of it being, it is a career. It is quite a hard career at times because... We sometimes have to fight to be recognised and to get fair pay and to all those things. And, and being a freelancer is never easy. I love being a bridge between two cultures, being able to bring 
something from one culture into another culture that gives people a window on things out with their daily life. And if that's from another culture, from another country, from, I think it expands our horizons. It allows us to travel in our armchairs. I can read books from India that teach me about a life that is so different from my own. So I think that is absolute value of translation. I think also there, and with that, there is what I would call a political element, is that it makes us more tolerant, it makes us more open, makes us more curious. And that the more open... One of the books I translated was called Literature and War. And it was... This is very pertinent at the moment. It was a Norwegian who'd been reading about the Palestine-Israel conflict. He didn't really know enough about either side. So as a writer, he went to Israel and interviewed 10 Israeli authors and 10 Palestinian authors about their books and about their writing, but also about what was going on and how they view the other. So I think that if we read literature that come from a space that we're not familiar with, we open ourselves. And I think that the more people who are open and tolerant of difference, the less our political systems can stir up conflict when it suits them. If that makes sense. So that's from the deeply personal to the... Now we will come to Lydia. Before we get into the book, please introduce us to the author, Rune Christiansen. So Rune Christiansen is quite, he's a prolific author. He's a very shy author as well. He's a very modest man. I met him for the first time this summer. He's delightful. But he is, oof, I don't know, could you say primarily a poet? He's published 15 poetry collections, and 10 novels. He started off writing poetry. So his first publication in 1986 was poetry, and his first novel was published in 1990. And he's also done a novella and a collection of essays. His most recent publications have both been poetry. And then in 2021, his last novel is The Case of the Caprice of Lost Time. It's going to be called, and it's going to be published by Book Hug in Canada again. And it, he has a very distinct manner of writing where titles are entire little compositions on their own. So I don't know if you notice that the, the, the start of chapters, they have the, some quite complex chapter headings which are stories he often has chapters where, where there are extracts from other fiction or from things that do not belong necessarily strictly to the story but that back up what's going on and each chapter and the way he writes is they're often very long paragraphs. They're quite long sentences. 
I, I don't know. It's poetry. It can be very simple. It can be very simple and it can be extremely poetic. But it's like he layers things. So it's like building up a painting. So for me, it's a very... I, I really visualize the lives of these people and how they live. And one of the, the other extraordinary things is there is almost no direct speech in any, in any of these books that I've translated. And they are loosely seen to be not a trilogy, but they are, it's acknowledged that they run together. So Lydia was actually the first book that he wrote in 2014, which was followed by Fanny and the Mystery of the Grieving Wood in 2017, and then this new, The the Case of the Caprice of Lost Time in 2021. So Fanny is very obviously about grieving and death. Lydia is about life and love. And the the next one, the, the, The Case of the Caprice of the Lost Time, which again shows you some of his... And that one, he riffs a bit on crime because he loves Josephine Tay, classical crime. So please introduce us to Lydia, the loneliness in Lydia Inzman's life. When I first read this, I was absolutely captivated. And like I say, and with Fanny as well, Fanny has lived on with me until I met Lydia. I think Lydia usurps everyone. I want, I really, I just thought she resonates with me so much. So she is, I'm trying to think how to introduce it. She is a woman who's grown up as an only child in a remote farm in the far north of Sweden. And she is a very self-contained woman, as her parents were. So you learn laterally that maybe her mother wasn't quite so self-contained. And she decides she wants to be a vet and she goes to the south of Norway, the south of Sweden. She trains to be a vet and then she ends up in a rural community in Norway where she works as a vet and she is deeply contented with her life. So at this point, I, I always said, is it really the loneliness of Lydia Erneman's life in, in, in Lydia Erneman's life or is it solitude so we talked about this a lot but it is the loneliness because then what happens is she she meets this young boy who comes to her because he has found a dog that's been run over and they develop a a unique relationship because the boy is quite awkward he comes from a, a difficult family and and he and Lydia meet in what I guess is their solitariness um, and, and Lydia starts to question if she want, would like to have a child and, and then it becomes in a way this is the loneliness in her life so she's very happy with with her life but there is this question it's not a dr- dramatic book it's not and then she meets a man they have the children and it's all very low-key there's that beautiful bit about what we leave behind us. And she inherits her mother's grey coat. And so she thinks that her mother's grey coat, she needs to wear it every day. So she wears it to work and it gets dirty and it doesn't. 
And I think that's one of the things that really appeals to me is the quietness, what's unsaid. And it allows you to really to live it in a very different way. Interestingly, not everyone likes it. Interestingly, how could they not like it? So I actually had to go and pick up the Norwegian version this morning from someone I'd lent it to. And she couldn't get into it at all. Um, it's brutal. Lingering is a really good word for it. <laughs> it lingers. It really does. And her doubts and her questions, you feel her sincerity. But I suppose it's a book, all three books actually have a, a very dreamlike quality where reality and dreams don't merge, but you're never quite sure where the boundary is. In Fanny, it, it, it's even greater, I think. But that's also because she's grieving in a different way. But there are some dreams in Lydia where she dreams become part of the story. And I think you have to be in a place where you can get into that headset. If you're sitting down to read for energy, for you want plot-driven, don't go near it. If you want to be reflective and take that, dive into that space, I think you will be rewarded. There's no doubt. You really get a sense of who they are and of the relationship between them, even though it's never specified. So the fact that she loves her memory of her father is always smoking, which but you, I recognize that character and that the feeling that he gives her even though I don't necessarily have anyone like that. And that's not my father. That's not, I, there's, a, there's a kind of recognition of, she's a very yeah, self-contained, serene, mindful in many ways. She just does what she does and she lives what she lives. But there is, the loneliness is this questioning that comes in and out of her life. Have I done the right thing? Should I go back to my father? Does he need me? Does he not need me? All those, which are very, human question. I think we all have them. For me as a woman, he made me realize that thing of being content alone as well. That kind of, so, but how I think relations about how important relations are to ourselves, to others. So the lovely little descriptions about the vet when she goes to visit the various farms and how they respond to her without us knowing what exactly they're thinking or feeling or saying. There's a kind of, there's a chemistry, it's also like magic, that he produces this feeling without telling us what to think. Now, uh, please read a couple of paragraphs from the book in English and Norwich. So this is from the middle of the book, and I just thought it, it, it illustrates Lydia's life and, and the style of the book. Vorn kom tidlig. Allerede i begynnelsen av mars flagret milde vinner forbi og smelte vannet dryppet og rant i takkerenner og avløp. Var det bare en falsk bebudelse? Nej, varmen este frem. Grønnsværet anget og slo ut overalt, fylte og løfte tre kronene. Og den som hade varit sparsomt og ubetydelig, blev noe mektig og umåtelig nærværende. Og selvfølelsen, den vokste den også. 
For til tross for at Lydia avslutte forbindelsen med Bård da han flyttet nordover efter en praksis, blev hverdagen mer forsonlig, nettene håpfulle. Hun utførte arbeid med en form for løsslopenhet likevekt. Løsslopen likevekt, lyset hente henne, selv midt i en kritisk tildragelse med blå skit oppover til albene, la hun merke til en milde kvittring ute i solskinnet. Hun var der hun ville være, i det landlige, det provinsielle. Hun tog til sig og tog sig i å tenke at den paradoxale tilværelsen, den sløve og godmodige tilfredsheten våren fremkalte, har blitt forært henne. Hjemme drev hun med sine bedagelige sysler. Hun leste i forskjellige anatomibøker, noterte ned dagens hendelse i det lyseblåa heftet, korte risbare, et og annet spørsmål, med det ene og det andre som hun måtte huske og slå opp, ting hun ville sette seg nøyere inn i. Best av alt likte hun en stelle i yttebeddet. Hun hadde stor glede av å holde på der i den lune kroken og hagen, i den lille jordflekken som hun stadig utvidet. Selv i solnedgangen var det tilstrekkelig med lys. Hun holdt det gående til mørke falt på, gravde og luket og rakte. Det lå en egen langsomhet i disse gjøremålene. Og det frodige miniaturlandskapet var fylt med øresmå levende vesene som kravlet omkring i ro og mak, eller flyktet rettslagene fra den gedigende skapningens flittige hender. Spring came early. Milder winds blew in at the start of March, and the melting snow dripped and ran down from gutters and pipes. Was it just a false promise? No, the warmth continued, the grass swelled and released its scent, the treetops filled out and lifted their heads, and what had been sparse and insignificant now became vital and intensely present. Her self-esteem grew too. And even though Lydia had broken off with Boyd when he finished his placement and moved north, her days were more appeasing, her nights hopeful. She carried out her work with a kind of unrestrained equilibrium. The light served her well, and even in the middle of a critical situation with blood and shit up to her elbows, she heard the gentle twittering outside in the sunshine. She was where she wanted to be, in the country, in the provinces, She found herself thinking that this paradoxical existence, the lethargic and good-natured satisfaction that came with spring, had been bestowed upon her. She occupied herself with leisurely activities at home. She studied various anatomy books, made notes about the day's events in her likely journal, brief outlines, the odd question, this and that to look up, things she wanted to explore more. But most of all, she liked to work on the herb bed, She got immense pleasure from this sheltered corner of the garden and the small piece of ground that she was constantly expanding. Even at sunset there was enough light enough and she would carry on digging, weeding and raking until darkness fell. There was beautiful slowness to these chores and the lush miniature landscape was teeming with tiny creatures that wriggled and peacefully crept around or fled in terror from the giant being's hands. Thank you very much, Kari. Thank you for the time and uh, the wonderful session. You're most welcome. Thank you.